There's a background assumption, a nationalist assumption that a lot of people are carrying around that's like the U.S. legal system, if you just input the right things, will just spit out like pure <laughs> liberation. If we just did it right, if we just had the right justice, yeah. if we just had the right. And this system is is a warfare strategy against the people who are targeted as threats or drains. That is how we're framed. And once you have that understanding, then you see the, the sort of PR moves the system does to absorb our critiques. Welcome to Medicare for All Week. Today, Artie, Phil, and I are here with our guest, Dean Spade. Dean, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Dean Spade is a professor of law at Seattle University and author of the recent book, Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next, as well as the book, Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law. Dean, you have a uh, fantastic body of work, but we've invited you here today so that we could have a conversation about the limits of judicial reform, but also how to build power, you know, forward-looking power behind movements for health justice, not just power that's sort of locked to, let's say, uh, for example, like an election cycle. I think that there are some pretty strong mythologies about what we can do in terms of like fighting for civil rights in the courts, what these legal challenges to secure civil rights actually mean. But in reality, for example, like every legal battle to save the ACA has had very little impact on the material conditions of people's lives. So I think it's important as part of Medicare for All Week to ask like why that is and also to talk about like what this framing does in terms of like dispersing power and actually demobilizing people and undermining solidarity. So um, I thought a good place for us to start was maybe, I know you've done a lot of work on this in the past. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about this like framing that I think you often see in American political discourse where there's a law that's passed or this huge legal challenge is mounted and there's this big push and you've won, right? And then poof, like everyone dispersed, game over, job done good job. We're good to go. What in effect is that actually like doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think this, this really cuts across so many areas of our lives. There's a kind of mythology about law that I think is really central. It's like, if something's written in the law, then that's how things will be. Like that's one of them that really ignores implementation in general. And I think for, like, mm. as you just said, for those of us living in a United States that was an explicit apartheid state and then passed a set of laws that said racism was illegal around the same time as passing laws that said sexism and ableism was illegal in various ways. And then we lived for another half century and actually saw the life conditions of people of color, women and people with disabilities worsen during that period and wealth further concentrate and this huge criminal apparatus grow and explode and this huge border militarism apparatus grow and explode. We start to have to ask ourselves, what is it law is doing in these settings where we're told that like that's where justice will come from or that is the kind of final step of a social movement is that it passes its law and then we can all go home as you said and i think instead we see that the legal system is designed one way that critical race theorists talk about it is that it's preservation through transformation so it's like the if there's a big uprising by social movements 
the law will change just enough to primarily preserve the status quo. <laughs> I find that to be like a useful phrase for understanding what happens. So you could, another example I often look at is like in the 1920s and 30s when there's a lot of amazing labor organizing in the United States and there's this huge depression and people are, um, you know, really questioning capitalism and its extractive methods. You see things like the last National Labor Relations Act passed and other legis legislation that is designed to bring, to basically pacify, um, to bring what people, you know, like industrial peace to like make it so that workers will go back to the, to the same extractive or even worsening extractive relations. Um, with kind of some sort of minimal um, protection that doesn't actually land in people's lives very much. Or if it does land in anyone's lives, it'll be the least stigmatized of that group of people. So it might work out best for a certain kind of white male worker, but it's really not going to work out for domestic workers or agricultural workers, et cetera. So I just, we could, we could kind of do endless examples of this in U.S. law. But I, and one other thing I want to say about this is that the story this mythology about U.S. law is centrally like an anti-Black story because the main thing it hangs on in the political imagination is that slavery and racism used to be legal mm -hmm. and now they're illegal and now we're post-racism. Like that has been in a million <laughs> different ways that story is central to U.S. nationalism. And that it plays out in all kinds of other areas as well, but it's an anti-Black story about redemption from anti-black racism and saying like all is clean and well. And for, you know, for those of us who are aware that U.S. legal system is a colonial legal system founded in genocide and slavery, it's constitutively anti-black, constitutively anti-indigenous. We're not like that story is just, it's so damaging in, in both because it demobilizes people, as you mentioned, like, oh, this is going to be taken care of by this law. And also because um, it prevents mobilization because it's like, this has already been taken care of. And so it must be that that everything is equal and that we have a race blind and gender blind, et cetera. You know, those, those, those phrases that are used so frequently about our purportedly neutral systems when, of course, they're actually quite targeted. Well, th this is interesting because, I mean, you know, we're talking, this is like Medicare for all week, sensibly. It's like a week named after a, a proposed law. And, <laughs> um, you know, I think you're rightly identifying these these real limits of reformism and and of the law to make a profound dent in these uh, in this sort of hierarchy that that sort of has existed sort of coterminous with the the origins of of you know the American state and I, I guess you know I wonder you, you've been involved also you know you're a lawyer and 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 you've been involved with movements that you know, uh, have, have some, uh, uh, entree into the law. Like what is the laws? Like, I I'm very curious. Cause I think this is like a many, many people who like mean well and, and want to do good things. It is like, there is a, an allure of law that it is the thing that will, you know, uh, be the fulcrum by which we change things. Like wh why is that? Why is it so alluring? And like, what can, can you like describe like the trap yeah, I mean, I think the trap, because I, I teach law students, and so um, I see them, they come to school, they want to free their community, people, the ones who don't just mm -hmm. want to, like, you know, work in corporate law and get rich, people with really <laughs> good intentions, you know, this, this, the set of people who are like, I want to, this has happened in my community, or these experiences with the yeah. migration system, or with the, and I, and, and I think it's because that's the way we've been told the story. It's like the big moment is when your charismatic 
leader signs the bill with the president or when, you know, mm-hmm. or stands behind the president while they sign the bill or the, the big judicial case, the Roe v. Wade, the Brown versus Board of Education, like that's the story. And I think that, that part of what um, I also heard in your question is like, what is a more strategic way to approach law? And for, um, it's not about like turning our backs. We, we don't, even though like I'm a prison abolitionist, I'm not like, I'm never going to deal with the prison system. Like, no, pe- my people are in there. So I'm yes, absolutely going to yeah. engage with it. The question is how to engage tactically with law. So, mm-hmm. so what changes about our strategies when we stop thinking the answer is coming there and we start thinking very pragmatically and realistically about the limits of what can be delivered there. And then we say, but will that change the conditions, the terrain of struggle in ways that are useful? And how would that be the case? So for example, I don't think, um, I think that, if, if what I believe really makes change is mass numbers of people organizing and staying mobilized, then what I want to do is organize for law change in ways that, that you get there through that, not like a backroom deal between like an elite nonprofit and a, you know, your state <laughs> legislator, right? Like I want it to be our work on legal change should be mobilizing because you're more people mobilized to say, you know what, this isn't being implemented or, you know what, this didn't cover some of us. Um, we were written out of this or this is like, we're going to, we have an ongoing uh, contention with the government and with this legal system because it's, because it is what it is. It's colonial, it's racist, it's sexist, it's ableist. And so the real question is how do we learn how to put on a lot of pressure? And if we just do lawsuits and policy arguments and lobby day visits, that's um, kind of putting all of our eggs in this basket. And it's also just not going to get us very far because the people who those politicians really listen to and who those judges are really guided by, of course, are like the people who are the extractors. So we can't beat them at that game. Those people own all those leaders, right? We can only, the only time we get any gains is when we're heavily organized and and we're a threat, right? And so it's a really different theory of change that doesn't center law, but might include law as a tactic. Also banner drops might be a tactic. Also blocking cold trains with our bodies might be a tactic. You know, it's not, it's that, that is not a preferable tactic and it's got all these dangers in it, like writing certain people out of the legislation or, um, or having it not be implemented. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is something that we've really wanted to emphasize as part of this series, which is that Medicare for all specifically is is a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. This is Medicare for all is not the point. It is just an extremely strong lodestone on which to build a bunch of other things. And I think that this is where you start to see some of the strongest opposition to Medicare for all is that that as a as a piece of policy, um, obviously, you know, it is a uh, there are limitations, but there are aspects of this policy which actually do undermine the functions of the institutions of power. And that's kind of an important um, component of Medicare for All that you've seen people try to appropriate the brand of Medicare for All and then water it down. Um, or you've seen uh, people trying to remove this aspect of Medicare for All, which which would undermine the institutions like taking out long-term care or or allowing mm-hmm. room for private insurance to still be included like there we don't have to make policies and laws which um inherently uphold institutions there's still ways to undermine them yeah and also i think i mean you guys i know you've done like like episodes on trans healthcare in the uk or like looking at places that have a, bro- a broader and more inclusive healthcare system we see that like and or even just looking at who gets Medicare now, which is like, yes, it's, there's still people left out. There's still ways in which it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. People are cheated out of care or denied care that are supposed to be covered. Like, absolutely, the fight doesn't end. But it, we'd be on a better terrain of struggle if we had Medicare for all and if we had the version that has long term care in it, you know, that and if we actually um, I mean, it's it's 
the, the level of death and suffering and agony um, in our communities caused by lack of access to healthcare and the stresses around that is it, it, that also um, impedes our organizing because people are not surviving who are wise leaders that we need. And so I think that's the other piece of this. It's like, I think that sometimes when, when you have a prison abolitionist politics or a healthcare or housing for all politics, these kinds of strong um, beliefs that I have, people are like, Oh, well, you can't, since you can't get that all at once, then it's impractical, but it's like, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> None of us are under any illusion that we can get right. all of our demands right. in one instantaneous or certainly not through one piece of legislation, but instead we do an evaluation. We ask with this particular next tactic we're thinking of using, like perhaps a particular law or legal reform, we're saying, does it leave out the most stigmatized people? Does it have a, does it bring material relief? Does it build a system we're trying to dismantle? Is the way that we're winning it going to mobilize lots of people for the next parts of the fight? And those questions let us assess, like, is this actually in our interest or are we going to be duped by this or demobilized or undermined by this? And that's, and there's, you know, a lot of, a lot to debate inside those questions. It's not like there's an obvious answer to each of those questions, but I think this, um, even having that level of discernment already suggests a critical view of law. It's not just like get the system to say the nice things about it. It's like yeah. I'm sure they, would pass, <laughs> they would pass a two-thirds law that said we already give everybody healthcare. They would love to pass that law. Like they, yeah. already, you know, they pass laws all the time that say they're already doing things that they're not doing that are unenforceable. Like just anti-discrimination laws in general, or oh, yeah. all kinds of laws, right? So we, what we want to say is like what is this going to do for us? And are we going to regret anything about this later? And of course that's speculative, but we have a lot of experience of what we do regret about legal reforms we've done <laughs> that can guide us. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I think it's really important to be, uh, especially analyzing like things that are being proposed for whether or not they're going to build on institutions that uh, actively contribute to misery and death and sickness. Um, and also just to, to be looking basically, you know, is this policy actually designed to sort of carve people out and be demobilizing? And is this a counterinsurgent piece of policy? There's something that you talk about often, which is sort of like the, uh, I think you called it war the warfare framing of policy, which is that basically there are, there are these uh, counterinsurgent moves that are made through policy decisions, which actually sort of cleave movements and uh, remove some of the urgency and agency and ability to organize that's actually like pushing for these things. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm very heavily instructed by especially Black liberation struggle, Indigenous struggle, um, that is, that has named, like the U.S. is at war with our people. Like that has been especially named by those two movements. But I think we can see that for a lot of different groups, like that there's a, there's a genocidal, you know, move that is, and that has a lot of effect and it does end people's lives early. And that also we have very rich, abundant resistance to, but when you, when you reframe instead of like the U.S. legal system, I should have said this at the beginning. There's a background assumption, a nationalist assumption that a lot of people are carrying around that's like the US legal system, if you just input the right things, will just spit out like pure <laughs> liberation. If we just did it right, if we just had the right justices, yeah. if we just had the right court, whatever. And you know, a lot of us instead are like, oh no, this system is is a warfare strategy against the people who are targeted as threats or drains. That is how we're framed. And we once you have that understanding, then you see the the sort of PR moves the system does to absorb our 
um, our critiques. And so that it's like, we're going to have gay cops now, or we're going to hire <laughs> women and people of color as cops, or we're going to, um, I mean, the, I live in Seattle and the examples here abound because it's like everyone here, like I'm going to be a social justice prosecutor. And I'm, you know, this is like <laughs> every single person in our government while they build the jails and prisons and send people into ICE custody are all proclaiming themselves like essentially abolitionists. I mean, it's just, they just, as soon as the word exits our mouths as activists, they just are like already reframing and absorbing them and also passing legislation saying they're committed to them. Um, so that kind of move, that counterinsurgency move, which often does happen in the policy context is, is, um, I just think we have to be so much more sophisticated than we used to have to be in an earlier period of even of this neoliberal stuff, like just the ways they like put people who look like us in office and they, they have, you know, just watching Biden's appointments and his appointments of all these intensely pro-war, pro-oil and gas people of color. Um, It's really hard. It's just, it's like um, we need to kind of do a lot of political ed in our communities so that people get to have more shared discernment around some of these PR moves that these systems are using to, to maintain themselves in the face of like, you know, existential crisis. But it also seems like, you know, one, one of the implications of your analysis is that it's it, PR is obviously very important, but so too is the way that the law is used and designed kind of strategically as a way of, um, I don't know, sort of eviscerating the forces that uh, may have mobilized for its creation. So, like, the thing that I always think about is, like, laws create their own um, social categories and their own sense of what the success of the law would look like, right? They create their own metrics. And, um, you know, those things then come to stand in for the thing that people were like, we, we begin to like measure justice in some way. And then <laughs> that, that stand, comes to stand in for the thing that people were pushing for to begin with. That's just one example. But I, I'm curious, you know, if we're thinking about like, what are some things that uh, a law could do that you would want that you want to be looking for uh, as a sort of counterinsurgent or demobilizational thing? Because often I, I find that the thing is that like, the things that you're talking about are often buried so deep in the damn text that like it takes almost like a literary critic to like pull it out. So like, what should we be looking for? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great question. There, there's not a lot of pieces to it. Like one piece of it that we have to name, especially with Medicare for all, but also with all legislative strategies is just that like stuff gets added or pulled out at the end of the process or like somewhere in the process when it feels way beyond the reach of the people who might have really tried to work to get it in there. And now it's like this job of these technocrats in Congress or your state legislature. And that feels to me like if we don't have the political like the intense political pressure behind it from mass mobilization of people, then they know they can just get away with that. You know, like the only thing that stops that is when we make it politically impossible. So I think that's like just a piece of it. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of evaluation, I mean, you know, it's just those same things that that I think we're all always looking for. Like, is it leaving out the most stigmatized people, you know, or, you know, like people who don't have, haven't had this type of job or these kinds of work histories or, you know, whatever the story is people whose whose care has been determined to be too expensive because we'd rather they just die. You know, all of those <laughs> kinds of typical things that happen in our healthcare system. Um, it, and is it doing that? Like, I think a lot about this moment at the end of Obama's um, presidency where there had been so much pressure from the Not One More Deportation Movement for so long and from the Dreamers and all these people to to take some kind of executive action on immigration, which he could have done very robustly. And instead, he 
did DACA and DAPA. And he stood up and gave a speech and he says, we want our immigration system to go after felons, not families. Mm. And he also, you know, added a bunch of more border enforcement money when he passed those. And as, as those always go together, right? And it's like he was doing such important PR work for the concept of immigration enforcement, even while he gave like really limited relief to a you know a relatively small group of people, um, and and a, and a lot of um, migrant justice orgs rightfully named it as a day of mourning, even though they had won some yeah. relief for some people, and that was the that was a strategically a smart way to respond to this. Cause you know, Obama wants to write it off as like, I'm the hero of, um, of immigration. Cause I finally gave you guys these crumbs. And the, and the movement was like, no, no, you could have done so much more. And what you've done is divisive and problematic and is going to have racist results and classist results. And we're not, you know, we're not going to declare it this victory. And so I think that's another piece of it. It's just like, and what I notice in my own political context is that a lot of times, like the larger nonprofits, like they want to declare that victory. You know, they want to make mm-hmm. this compromises because they make their money off of being like, we're the ones who passed the big law or whatever. And sure. it's the unpaid grassroots organizing groups where nobody's got this as their professional job. They're the ones who are usually saying like the truer thing. They're usually saying like they're holding the abolitionist line or they're holding the absolutely everybody needs to be included line. And so the question is, how do those groups? Um, they're also the only ones who are actually doing grassroots mobilization, whereas the nonprofits are just kind of doing policy work um, and not mobilizing people. So how do we, and this is a great moment, I think, for grassroots mobilization. Like uh, right now, people are more open to that idea and have just seen it, you know, um, than in other times in my life. So I'm just like, how do we all tune into those groups and what they're saying if we're trying to, to share space, evaluating, and especially when it's highly technical. I mean, one other thing about this, which I'm sure you've seen is that we have all been told under neoliberalism that like law and economics is just too complicated for us and <laughs> special scientists will do it. And, and we should just kind of like only know the most basic talking points. And so I saw this summer, like all of these different city and county councils declared that they were going to defund the police and then went on to not do that. But a lot of people thought it had happened because their council members stood up and said that. Yeah. But then most people don't actually have um, the interest or skills to like go into the budgets. So, like almost nobody's paying attention to the actual budget process in their city or county. Um, and, and, you know, the people who are, are like, you know, the people who Amazon or whatever here in Seattle, so those people are making, are, they, they have plenty of people hired to, to make they want. And so one of the questions is like, how do we increase our capacity to follow the details and to, and to, and to, to communicate out to our movements because if we are those people who are able to follow those details to make, communicate it out in ways that lots of people can understand. So like, how do we keep mobilization going when it gets really boring and dry and something like <laughs> Medicare is really like, that's like, that stuff is hard to read. You know, even if you're a total expert, that stuff is really hard to read and there's a million pieces to it. And so, I mean, you guys, your podcast does a great job of this, of telling us all like what's really in those bills. But I think that that's actually a real obstacle to our organizing right now is that people can be more easily bought off with a couple talking points or just the name of some legislation, and then the and then what's inside is not delivering them what they hoped for or what they thought they were winning, and that the gap between those sort of defined print and that talking point is 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 too yawning. That's why I think we try and be really realistic about Medicare for all because we're we're always very upfront and we say like, you know, especially me speaking as a disabled person on current. Medicare, like Medicare for all will not be this beautiful panacea of like everyone has all the care they need immediately, instantly. However, like 
what it does do, which I think is kind of unusual for policies that we've seen recently that have been proposed, um, is that it actually does sort of make moves towards creating this large constituency. As you were saying, like with the UK, you sort of have a little bit of an advantage by having all people together under this one uh, health finance system. And I think the most important reason why this is actually a, a good thing is that it sort of removes any it removes any binary requirement that has to be in there. It removes the sort of constraints that are holdovers from like eugenics and the racialization of like just all of our uh, systems of like governance in the United States, which is like this uh, determination of like the deserving and the undeserving recipient of uh, whatever goods and services or resource allocation to survive. And so I think one of the things that's that's really important when when analyzing these things is exactly what you're saying, looking at, at who is left out, who is included, and what are the eligibility determinations? Because just looking at how eligibility is framed really gives you an idea of what the intent behind the policy is and where the where the targeting is and who's going to be harmed by it. Because ultimately, like one thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that oftentimes when certain groups are are given their uh, policy concessions, that comes at a cost to other people as well. And I don't really mm -hmm. feel like we can claim victory until we're claiming victory through policies that don't harm other people in the process. Yeah. And I think the thing you just said, too, I just want to break it down a little bit more because I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't know this, is that our tiered public benefit systems are really unusual globally. Like mm -hmm. the idea of putting everyone in one pot and having one public health care system like in the U.K. or many other rich countries um, is why do we have Medicare and Medicaid and then all this other stuff in the middle? Right? like. Why do we have social security <laughs> benefits for old people who've worked a certain amount and that's different for social security benefits for people who haven't worked a certain amount and that's different for TANF benefits for people, you know, like that all of, and if you just look in our own imaginations, if you think, who do I picture when I picture social security or like old white person, who do I picture when I picture TANF? <laughs> oh, that's welfare. I picture a black mom, a Latinx mom. Like we, these tiers have all this political meaning and it relates to how they get funded and how incredibly um, ungenerous the benefits are and all of these pieces. And, and it's like, it's a super racialized system that comes, I think, from the fact that the U.S. is a settler colony. And so it always, from its founding, had a really strong story about cultivating white lives and, mm -hmm. um, and, and not, not being, not offering the same, like not the same national us um, for black people, indigenous people, and other people who are newer migrants or whatever, the people who are considered like the undesirable, the not us of the nation. And so all of our systems are so broken up that way with these super strong, like racial and gendered messages about who's in each tier. And to do Medicare for all is really to undo that potentially. I mean, I, I you know, as you said, we'll still have mm -hmm. a lot of problems with the program as they do in countries that have, there's still ways the system will cut out certain people's care, but it does, it change, changes who fights for that program um, and like who's in the us. And that is like super threatening to the way the U.S. has mm -hmm. organized like all of it's like, let's care for the people type of <laughs> systems as like very, you know, inadequate and small as they are. It also seems like there's a double problem here, though, which is that um, we have this incredibly um, uh, segmented and segregated series of social programs and they they suck in a lot of ways. And they <laughs> are, you know, I mean, really just really, I, I think, um, you know, entrap people. 
uh, prevent them from ad- for advocating for, uh, you know, even the their own rights within the program uh, because of the way that they stigmatize people like and this is all something that is now like I think increasingly common knowledge. But the 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 tricky thing, right, is that they also actually do provide these material benefits. And so it's very easy to get drawn into like fighting these rear guard battles. I mean, not this is what nonprofits do. This is like uh, sort of legal advocacy organizations end up doing. They end up just sort of like getting into these fights like they're protecting the program either as mm. as it exists or or like the things that have been gained in recent years and that is the way because those wins are somewhat easier it they are in a sort of drawn away from actually thinking about what a different uh, program would be i mean like how as somebody who's like in these worlds like how do you think about navigating that aspect of it and this is the other things like we often get criticized for saying like like oh why you know uh, don't you realize like these these other programs actually like provide people like uh, the things that they need like you don't want like th- we could solve this thing like we could deal with all of these problems tomorrow you heartless you know um, <laughs> heartless person mm-hmm. right um, can you talk about like navigating that as, as somebody who uh, has all of the tools and like works in this world but like is also very much thinks about it in a very different way. Yeah I mean one thing is well, one thing I'd have to say is like not only do these programs only inadequately and, un- and unevenly provide some things for some people, but also like people are explicitly criminalized through these programs. Like yeah. mm-hmm. it's easy to like get a, like to get a bill for Medicaid. They're like, Oh, you weren't eligible for that surgery you got in April and you didn't know. And now they're like, you better sign this thing saying you'll pay it all back. And if you don't pay it all back, there'll be criminal consequences. And people are signing that thing. Like I have friends who do that job of helping people through those systems and you know, people who've been criminalized for um, welfare fraud because they, like use their food stamps for something they didn't know you couldn't use food stamps for. I mean, there's the amount of um, not only not providing things to people, but also like it's one of the ways poor people enter the criminal system. Um, But I think, yeah, so all the dilemmas you're talking about are really big. And I just also name they're really big for me as an anarchist. So I don't think the U S government is ever going to provide well-being and support for the lives of Mm -hmm. the people here like in a way that's not racist and sexist and ableist, because that is what I believe like is the nature of our colonial government and our legal system. And I think we should fight inside that system for things we can get for people, whether that's me individually representing somebody for their welfare benefits, or whether it's us trying to get a Medicare for all bill that we think is as good as it can be. And I think what that's about is like, you know, just what you're saying, like people will just be like, if you try to bring any critiques often of any bill, people will be like, well, how can you critique this one? We have have nothing and we're just going to get this thing or we have to protect this thing at all costs. And there's kind of this like, like lack of imagination. And a lot of that is just about how my lifetime has been like most anti-revolutionary times. (laughs) Like it's like neoliberalism (laughs) is huge. We have been under attack. So people are like, we are so, it's not this moment in the same way it's been the rest of my life. Thank goddess. But it, it has been like a time in which we, were so delegitimized. Anyone who said people should have housing, people should have healthcare, people, like some people shouldn't have everything while other people have nothing, like this makes no sense. Like that has been <laughs> so stigmatized and unspeakable. And then the nonprofit system, right, was this system that emerged in the wake of the very revolutionary period in the 60s and 70s. It was a system that emerged to contain and limit the demands and tactics of our movement. So literally mm-hmm. it was like that we're going to pay people to do this work as long as they stay, they, they, we're just going to pay the ones who the rich people in the government say are doing the work correctly, which means their work has to not imagine outside of these bounds. They have to make what were considered pragmatic arguments within like a Reaganomics or worse um, <laughs> politics. And that, um, 
that has really, really, really worked on on changing people's horizon of demand. And I I think that some of that is changing now. But I I think that that um that is that's the context for that conversation with that person who's like, how dare you question this thing? If it helps one person, that's the most important thing, as opposed to like, hey, I think that might hurt fifty thousand people or whatever. Um, and and I think that that is just like I think what that requires is what also like all prison abolition work requires, like all the work that's trying to get people to imagine what we actually want instead of just like slightly tinker with something that's really horrifying. Um, that that what that requires is just like long term relationship building. And so like, I'm filling those relationships with the people in the nonprofits in my town and saying like, no, please don't do it this way. Please don't do it this way. And this is why we think that, and I'm not going to throw you away if you do, but I'm also not going to shut up about how this isn't the right thing. And we're going to do the organizing with the lots and lots and lots of people who don't think that's right. And so you're, <laughs> so, so much of my, my life has been spent pressuring, like when they were building this new youth jail in Seattle that we fought for years, like pressuring the nonprofits in town to care about this, like pressuring them <laughs> to stand up against the jail because they had more access to the city council and county council and they were more listened to. So we were all these wing nuts pressuring them. It took us eight, seven, something, six years to get all of them to finally be like, oh yeah, building a jail for kids is bad. And then, um, and then they joined us in pressuring. So it was like, we never stopped pressuring, but we also continued to work on them because they were part of the ecosystem. But it was because we did this outside. We organized no matter what. You may not join us, but we're going to keep organizing against this until everyone in town knows what this is. And I think that complex like play inside an ecosystem where you're like believing in coalition and you're also not willing to like appease for coalition and just be like, oh, sure, yeah, we'll do it your way. Whoever's got the most staff and the most money and, you know, no way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 absolutely important important to be uh, to be building power that's like bigger than just uh, an election cycle, because obviously, like, I think one of the things that we always see is like people saying, well, it's going to take so long. Why are you even bothering this fight because it's going to take a decade or two decades or it'll never happen. Like you should do something more attainable or like, and I think that this plays into this sort of like short term idea of like how power works, Mm. which is actually very different from how power actually works. And part of the struggle I think is to educate people as to the actual complexity of power because it's a lot it's a lot more complicated than than we often talk about it as just being sort of like person oppresses uh, people and that's bad but that's not actually uh, that's not actually the case as, as we've been talking about there are like things built into the very fabric of our lives that that are these systems of power that reinforce, uh, all sorts of like instances of um, basically just labeling and marking a person as being disposable. And and mm. I think what I like to do when I push back on these people is when they're like, well, what's your end goal if you feel like, like what if you never win Medicare for all? I'm like, it matters to me is like building towards like, a, a, I don't know, building towards like a, a time or a place where no one's disposable, where like no one has no value where we don't throw people away, where we don't um, engage in war against people that we uh, think are not valuable. And that's, that's really important. And that's very difficult. But like someone also has to be pushing that and we and that does not happen overnight. Yes, but it also like does not need to be constrained to these like arbitrary time limits of the election cycle and who's in power and this sort of like jockeying game of constantly defending the ACA. And I feel like there's all these, uh, all these tactics, which like kind of bleed off energy too. Yeah. Yeah, And I think also, I mean, also capitalism loves short-term thinking. And I think that we have been, 
um, it's, it's actually the denial of real social movement histories that causes what you're describing. It's like people don't, haven't gotten to know about the struggles that are, that have led to the moments we're in now. And the, and so there's this kind of like, all this is, is whether this guy thinks this about us or this, you know, like it's very like produced <laughs> individuals. It's, you know, there's kind of, especially the, the national politics, it's like a weird celebrity sideshow, I think that really distracts us. And I think what's missing from that is actually how you create the terrain of struggle you want. So like, to me, when I look at like this moment that exploded this summer around um, police violence and racism, you look at like the decades and decades of the prison abolition movement in the United States and all the work people have done to talk about how we really could live without police and what it would mean to get rid of the police and understanding police budgets and all the campaigns all over the country to stop this or that jail or detention center from being built or prison from being built. And you think about like all of that work and all of the analysis it built and all of the toolkits it built and all, and that made it so that when this moment happened, we got a defund the police, like became a common term, which I never thought would happen in my lifetime. So you don't know when those moments will happen, but when you create the context in the day to day, and that means I think paying a lot of attention to like very local politics and like trying stuff out and doing it at the scale where it's possible. And then, and, and, you know, also we don't know like which things we're working on will like work or backfire. So you just like make your most educated guess about what you believe in the most and could sit through the effort of, you know, and, and deal with and do the boring parts of for the most, and then hope that it like, I mean, here in Seattle, I mentioned that we lost, you know, we lost that, that, that fight, they built that jail and they opened it and put kids in it. And, and then during the uprising this summer, suddenly the county um, exec, the mayor of the county, essentially, who had been the head of that project, he now says, we're going to close it. I mean, it had been open for less than a year when he was like, now we're going to close it. I mean, will they close it? I don't know. But like our work, our, you know, eight years of work to stop it changed the politics of the city. It changed what was possible in the defund campaign in the city council. Like we like that work to stop that jail did not win the battle we thought we were fighting, but it changed what was possible in the conversation when this other moment blew up. And so I think that there's just that also that piece of like understanding movements as very long and understanding like what seeds you're sowing as way more than like just a single trying to convince a single politician of something or trying to pass one piece of legislation, which is also why a lot of times you see people sell each other out for legislation. Like you were saying before, you know, (laughs) it's like, Oh, we're going to like give good PR to this horrible anti-choice legislator because he said something good about gay people in this bill. And it's like, like that, <laughs> those kind of short-term decisions are so poisonous to our movement's success overall, but they make sense when we're thinking in that like non-social movement history way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, this is a really weird moment right now. I mean, we are, uh, Joe Biden is firmly within the first hundred days of his term in office. And he was one of the most vocal opponents of Medicare for all during the primary. He had the most conservative health agenda, um, not to mention like his record on mass incarceration, but, um, I think as a result, a lot of people, even like, you know, very prominent Medicare for all activists and organizers that we know are really depressed. And I think for a lot of people, it's really difficult to see a path forward for something like Medicare for all. And and I get that. But and we all know, though, that it was always going to be a long, hard road. And I think part of uh, what's really gotten people down is that things appeared to be looking up a little bit last year. And I think that there's this perception that the health justice movement has been knocked down a couple of pegs. And I think, you know, we need to be doing something to be, we we need to be encouraging people to like, to 
to own Medicare for all as their own thing. We need to be like building power outside of four years. We need to be um, addressing the complexity of systems. Do you have any, uh, I mean, you've been doing this for what, 20 years now, Dean? Yeah. I mean, I, I do. um, I guess I think like, I I don't feel like I have like a full analysis by any means of like where Medicare for all stands right now, but I, I, it's like our, our, our sort of marching orders don't really change when the administrations change, you know, like the, the environment for doing the work can get harder. Like sometimes you can get harder when you have an Obama or a Biden elected and then people are like, ah, everything's cool. And then you're like, oh God, now we have to really remobilize because a lot of people are going to be like, I'm just so moved by the fact that this (laughs) cop um, who's a black woman is our vice president that I must that all is well under <laughs> justice in the United States. Those people probably were not likely to be like already very mobilized, but there is some of that. Like we saw some people get mobilized under Trump who weren't before because they're like, this is scary. And, and so how do we sustain mobilization? And I, part of me is just like, I mean, the economic crisis that we are living under, under COVID, I think gives the possibility of a lot of people being mobilized around Medicare for all, um, it gives me a lot of hope around that because it's just, it's so obvious how our healthcare system is utterly failing us and the devastating consequences of it. But I think ultimately, even when we go through periods where our issue is like, um, being ignored or something else to get the headlines or it's not popular, or we've got elected officials who are just like unmovable on something like, it's really not the end of the world, end of the road, because ultimately like we, it's just a question. I think it's just a question of mobilization. Like, just like, what is the next level of mobilization and how much pressure can we add more pressure and more pressure and more pressure? And people are, so many people are talking about Biden and saying he is not going to do the right things unless we constantly pressure him. And that is the right way, I think, to think about this presidency. And, and so I, I, I mean, like, it's like you, there's this deep sense, like we never know what's going to happen next, but we can just keep putting our effort towards building that pressure and that, and that will have, we hope like some effects, but we don't know exactly when or what other factors will, you know, play into it. Well, I, I think it's a really good, I think it's a really good point to say that the, it doesn't change. The administration changes, but the, but the, the, the strategy doesn't really change because I feel like the last, you know, really since, since the election, you know, you, you've seen these sort of, um, and of course it takes place like on Twitter where, you know, it is a, sort of just like a little punch and Judy like element of this, but it's like, oh no, the, you know, if the Democrats don't like put this up to a vote now, then, you know, like then the following or like, you know, if, if you don't, and sort of on the other side of the, I guess, sort of scale or spectrum, I don't even know if you want to call it that. Uh, it's like, well, if you don't, if you don't just now preemptively say that you'll accept, I don't know, not even half a loaf, but like some tiny little, uh, increment, then like, then you're, you are now the, the murderer. You're now the killer. Like you, you are botching your, uh, mm. your chance. And like, I, I think that the, it, it's like worth kind of thinking about the history of like, when I go back and like look at the legislative history of the ACA, it's like, yeah, there were not, um, you know, it wasn't as if like, uh, you know, there, there was any sort of sense that like, um, this is something that we should like, uh, go to bat for or like it's just like people the, the the groups that were sort of like the most mobilized were willing to accept literally whatever and then literally whatever is what happened mm. um and then and then the demobilization you know occurred a, as it did <laughs> but like um you know but i but i think your 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 point is really 
like valuable one, which is that like it's very easy to get distracted by these these calls to do this or do that. These sort of like basically fa- fantasy football league kind of shit. <laughs> um, but what you're talking about is the real is actually the real politics, and it's long term. It's also like we what we're trying to influence. It's like if we're there in the ecosystem, people who've had some stake in the game with Medicare for all, we're trying to move all of them to to demand long term healthcare be in there. We're trying to we're trying to demand every one, you know, we're trying to push everything to the left essentially all the time. And there's, and there's like the obstacles in that inside your coalition that wants this, that are willing to take bad deals sooner. And there's the obstacles of like your, you know, your targets, the legislators or the president, you know, there's so many pieces to that. But I think like just keeping clear about what would be a principled approach and, and all the millions of ways to push that. And just, you know, you just don't know what's going to stick. Right. So you just try stuff and then, reevaluate. I think one of the things that happens a lot for people is that people, especially behind legislation, people just get like, they're certain this legislation will help or they almost have an identity around it. Right. And they, mm-hmm. and like, I mean, I see this, like I, I see this with my students a lot. They'll be like, I studied drug courts and I wrote a, you know, law review article about it. And so now I'm just like drug courts are great. And like, Oh, we're going to talk about how drug courts harm people. And it's so hard to let it go. Or I studied this thing about, you know, training cops in this way. And I'm, we're going to talk about how that didn't work. And, and it's like, we all are like that, but especially people who have careers in something, it just it's <laughs> identity, you know, like it's, it's fashion. It's like policy fashion. It's like, yeah, I don't want to give up the fact that this is no longer a good look. I like yes. these. <laughs> right. It's all about branding at the end of the day, I guess, really. It is this kind of giant, like people do appropriate these, these uh, ideas which affect people's lives as part of their identity. Yeah. And I want to feel good about myself. I want to be a good person. So how can we look back at some legislation I helped pass or something and not, and, and not, and not just be like, I, are you saying I'm a bad person? I worked so hard. You don't understand. I overworked. I had, you know, people like just have resentment, difficulty with feedback. These are just like classic human, you know, especially in our culture. So it's like, I think, how can we all try not to be like that? How can we all just be like relentlessly curious about what works and doesn't work like that's and who it works for and who got left out and what we didn't, what we didn't notice the first time we didn't perceive like that to me is the like, and it's also much more interesting to be relentlessly curious about the thing you're working on instead of to just like dig our heels in and be like certain it must be the right way. I mean, there are also so many things beyond just like the, I think, immediate focus of the policy that need to be considered as well. Like, for example, like there are things that Medicare for all can do beyond just the healthcare space. One thing that we've talked a lot about in the series is how part of the problem with healthcare in the United States is not necessarily the price, but it's the geographical distribution of, of healthcare, or it's the uh, distribution of of physicians and nurses across the country where the labor actually is, where where people can afford it. Um, and I, I think there, there are all these other things that actually would be massively changed by Medicare for all between like just uh, changing the way financing works or being able to allocate money directly to regions, to their hospitals. So hospitals could serve their community instead of being these sort of for-profit surgery centers um, that are focused on collecting, you know, their, their fee for service uh, rates from private insurance companies. And, And I think it's really important to also consider like what the, what the bigger effects of policies are, because I think we just get caught up constantly in saving these sort of like banner things like protect pre-existing conditions. Like we have been in this constant cycle of 
litigating the ACA. And I think policies like Medicare for All, where you have a larger constituency, obviously they're they're much more difficult to pick apart. And we do know that like if something like this passes, like it will face judicial challenges probably when it's passed. But you know, there there is a I think there is like real value there to um, to thinking about what's bigger than the immediate uh, thing that the policy is actually offering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where movements come in. It's like the technocrats who are working closely on policies often get in the weeds, which is okay. Some of that is like, you know, a, um, a, a, a harm reduction strategy or is an immediate stopgap or whatever, but we need, we need just healthcare for all understanding and like to be the backup. And I, we also all need to be like, well, what would a Medicare for all that we're unwilling to pass look like? Like, I feel like a lot of times we don't spend enough time being like, what are compromises we don't think are acceptable? Like in the, you know, in some legislation, we're like, we don't, we, 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 it's not acceptable to leave out undocumented people, or it's not acceptable to leave out people who have felony records, or, you know, like, how do we decide that? Because I think that that's one of the ways in which I've seen the debate about healthcare often, you know, just cuts out people with particular um, experiences, or as you're saying, living in particular kinds of conditions or regions. It's just like, how do we have that be a normal kind of assessment that we think, and then it's not just like backroom deal for just the lawyers and lobbyists drafting, but instead like the movement really having a conversation about how we will not go forward if these people are left behind or if these elements are left behind. I was wondering if for a second we could talk about, about that uh, because a lot of times people say that the way to, the way to accomplish policies that, that serve everyone is by making sure that you have the right people at the table. And uh, here at the death panel, we are not, uh, fans of a, a representation first strategy uh, for public policy. And you've done a lot of work on something that uh, you that's termed like pinkwashing, which is where these companies sort of appropriate uh, liberal or progressive agendas in order to bolster their brand image. Yeah, I mean, we're in that so deeply, like that, that is like the phase of neoliberalism that we are heavily in. It's like, this is the moment we're living in. And I think the Obama presidency was one of the like really big flashpoints of it. It was just like, well, how can um, the first black president possibly be doing things that are really bad for black people and lots of other targeted people? And that's what he was doing. And it's like, I think that, and that comes up all over the place. One of the ways it comes up with kind of the seat at the table story is it'll be like, I mean, this has been so big in, in Seattle during the defund the police campaign that we've been on where the mayor, who's like horrible, she's just like, I need to find some black, I need to find some black people who I can get to, to agree with me and stand beside me in pictures and say that they're meeting with me. And so that it's her way of cutting out, you know, the broader black movement, right, is to find those representatives who will um, love having that moment in the spotlight, but being beside her or feel really important because they got to have that you know, that meeting, but they're actually undermining the other people who are like, we will absolutely not meet with you because this is what we want. You know what I mean? Like people are trying to, so it's, it, I think that there's this, the problem, one of the problems with that kind of space at the table is that they will always find somebody from our communities, whatever that community is to sit at that table who will say what they want. We have to, if, if our work isn't based in a larger mobilization and if we're not accountable to a larger set of people and if we don't have a clear way like that we're part of membership organizations and there's lots of people getting to have a say in what we're about and why we're about it and what our message is then it can really be easy for just like that that one person who you know often is like kind of conservative and or maybe went to law school or maybe really you know is a small business owner or whatever those kinds of stories that that's going to be the representation of this group of people and it's just like it's just happening 
just constantly. And and there's a really great chapter in Kianga Yamada Taylor's book um, from Black Liberation to Black Lives Matter, um, her book from a few years ago. She's got a chapter about this moment um, in the in the 70s and 80s, I think, where, you know, there'd been this huge black uprising in the United States, had so much impact. There's this amazing black liberation movement. And then there was this turn to elect black mayors. And it was like literally like this, like she talks about this one race, I think in Ohio, I can't remember which city, where it was like they want the the, the, the it was kind of like everybody get out of the streets and just vote for this guy. And so the 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 tag for the tag phrase was keep it cool for Carl. Like stay cool and just vote for Carl. And Carl, like a lot of the other black mayors who were voted for, um, just went on to en- enact pol- the same kinds of policies that white mayors had a- enacted before, just like we see, you know, consistently with whoever's the token representative of our communities. It's like they got there because they're willing to do the thing that the people in power want. And so I love teaching that chapter and talking to people about that because it's just like, we've been learning this lesson for a really long time, but, you know, our opponents are trying this harder than they've tried it in the past. Um, <laughs> and, and how do we... Um, you know, just like help each other stay clear about what we think are the actual outcomes we want in our communities instead of what kinds of faces we want, um, you know, telling us the bad news. But it also sort of occurs to me that like the the way that that strategy works is actually it's incredibly clever, which is that trust in government, trust in public officials, very low. Right. So they can't speak for themselves. So they find they basically Trust is this rare, valuable commodity. So then they, you know, mind that, right? They find the face. They find the um, the person that they can use as their sort of pass through. And, and they and they leverage that. But that only works if the other person is sort of, if there's if there's really just no, if that, that person is just a, whatever, a stand-in that, that ends up having some sort of better credibility and that credibility isn't challenged. It sounds like what you're sort of talking about is like now actually saying like who does have credibility uh, on these yeah. issues in our in our community? Like who 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 is who do we trust actually to tell us whether or not this is a good policy? And and do we trust the people who are being used as the sort of foil or the the uh, you know uh, smokescreen uh, for these things? Yeah, I mean, and I trust groups that are mostly volunteer unpaid and where a lot of people are in governance that's I, I just like there's no individual it's for me it's a lot more about are people in a process where they would really be hearing together and coming up with their shared wisdom about like who's going to get what's who's going to be left out if we do that if we do that if we do that like that and so to me like when i look around whatever issue i'm working on and i look at who are the groups in this state or in this region or whatever who are who are holding that line who are be, being clear in our in our based act actually have an organizing base and people are actually making decisions together it's not just one charismatic leader or one boss or whatever and that's I think most people don't have it's hard to see that because first of all like every single group no matter what it's like and even if it's just one person has a whole website and Instagram and Twitter that makes it look like it's the movement that's like a huge problem right now it's actually hard to see in like you usually have to have relationships in order to find out like what who's really behind that name or that org um, and also I think most people aren't encouraged to ask this question because most people have not actually gotten to find out how social change really happens because people think it is just when the law gets signed or when the charismatic person gives a speech. And so even asking like, wait, where did their agenda come from? Did they get a grant from the county to switch their agenda to say, we're going to put this program inside the youth jail instead of let's not have one, you know, like all of that stuff. And I think that's really, um, 
It, I mean, yeah. this is like a really complex problem because it's both about representation and it's also about the gap between how social change happens and how we've been told that happens. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think one of the things that, that uh, I feel like I see happening all the time is, is this like feeling that if you aren't some large elite organization, you can't actually have impact that uh, unless you are uh, Joe Rogan or whatever, like that there's some sort of like folly in, in making a podcast. Right. Like, and I, I think this is like part of a larger like mindset of austerity that we talk about all the time on the show, but what in my mind is the best way to fight against that is actually to just like fully push as hard as they did for welfare reform that we all start taking a little more responsibility for each other. Because ultimately, a lot of these moves that have happened that have resulted in further immiseration and uh, just just the absolutely hellish health landscape that we have right now, it's it's like tied into this process, as you were saying in the beginning of like, just sort of stabilizing the status quo of maintaining the process of extraction from the population of making sure that we're labeling people at a continuous pace in order to sort everyone into their proper bin so that they can, you know, be treated as they've been labeled to be treated. And and this is just this is this is a system that that I don't think is sustainable. I think that this is a, a system that is a, in and of itself sort of a trend. And what's important is to react against this idea that the only way to make change is through elites. Yeah. And I think that's really to the scale question. People ask me all, this all the time I work on mutual aid, like, well, yeah, all these, you know, thousands or millions or whatever people are doing all these mutual aid projects, delivering each other groceries and medicine and all this stuff. But like, how do you bring that to scale? And they, what they're saying, what they're thinking is scale would mean becoming an ACLU, a Planned Parenthood, being one centralized thing and having chapters everywhere and being like, you know, that's how you become elite. And it's, that is how you become elite in an authoritarian society. But that's not the only way to be of scale. I think that real powerful scale is coordinated and networked, autonomous projects and interventions that are all over that are able to use the wisdom of the place they are that are able to think about things in different ways and influence each other. And that's also harder to take down. They can't just like, you know, take you down the way they can take you down if you're all centralized, right? And this has been one of the huge lessons of social movements over the last 40 years, in my opinion, after the formats that were mostly used in the 60s and 70s that were a bit more centralized. But that idea that what we need is centralized and elite that is because that's how the government looks. Like that is like it's literally people modeling their own idea of of power on state power, which we know what that it's really good for extracting. It's really good for imprisoning. It's really good for enforcing borders for having militaries. It's terrible for actually getting everybody what they need and adapting to all the complexities of people's lives. And so I think that, um, that's another like mythology about social change that is, you know, just heartbreaking. It really is. It's so true. And I I think this is all, it might sound silly to say that, that, these framings that you have to mimic elite structures in order to affect change are part of this sort of warfare tactic. And as a disabled person, like in America, it's pretty, I, I can't think of a day in the past 10 years that I haven't really felt like the state is at war against me. And we like put all of these burdens in place and we create all these different programs with uh, different qualifications. And what that ultimately does is it also makes it really difficult for us to help each other, because if you're trying to get qualified for Medicaid in one state, you can't help if you're successful, you can't help someone in the next state get qualified for Medicaid because there's a different system. And I think that's why policies like Medicare for all you see such strong opposition because it's not equality in the sense of like civil rights legislation where, as we're talking about, you're just, say, making inaccessibility 
illegal or whatever that means, you know, or making racism illegal. It's it's not actually equality. It's it's giving people the tools to work together in order to secure survival for each other, which currently as it stands, our healthcare system does not do that. I mean, I have to give you, I have to tell you an example that's been on my mind so much lately. So, you know, a lot of mutual aid projects all around the country have taken in money this year, like buy people groceries, people's rent or whatever, people's bail. And if we all took it in through like, you know, your Venmo or PayPal or mine, you know, roundabout now, I'm going to be getting a statement from Venmo or PayPal basically telling me I have tax liability from that for that, right? And so we've been trying to, I've been working with people who are trying to offer some support and create a webinar about this and stuff. But as I was thinking about in depth, like exactly the system that does this, I was like, literally, it's it's impossible. It's trying to make mutual aid impossible. It's trying to make just sharing impossible because basically either we have to have a 501c3, which allows the government to like completely surveil and monitor our behavior and put all these limits around it. And it's really hard to get in for people who like aren't used to f- filling out forms or who don't even know what that is or whatever. Or we do this thing and then we give away all the money and then we end up having a $10,000 or $20,000 or $40,000, depending on how much we took in bill and like it literally is just like you can't just share like like that is so smart of capitalism to be like if you want to share you need to do it through this elite way (laughs) this complex thing and then you can get money from rich people and they'll tell you who you can give to and who you can't give to who they feel comfortable with like it is so deep like the ways and i mean i've had these conversations with people about like how disaster relief literally gets in the way of people being able to do disaster relief for their neighbors right especially if they've got like the national guard on the street shooting people like just the ways in which we are not supposed to support each other. And and that, and that is either, something's either mystified, like the Medicaid application example, or like literally like there is potential criminal penalty if you shared money and gathered it and gave it away and then don't pay this tax bill. Like that is so intense that we are in such a deeply anti-sharing culture. Well, I mean, as uh, probably Ronald Reagan would say, that is the dignity of risk though, <laughs> which we are all entitled to as as humans in this country. Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier uh, when you were talking about um, what happened over the summer and how a lot of uh, what was able to happen over the summer happened because of a lot of uh, organizing, much of it at the local level that had been happening for um, many, many years. And it kind of strikes me that, you know, I I mean, I guess maybe just to sort of like add, add to that point on top of things like you know, we can talk about, for, for instance, like lo- uh, organizing at the local level against like the entire carceral system, the in- entire um, prison industrial complex, right? Um, many of which have these, I mean, not just many, which, you know, has these very localized tendrils, you know, all over the country. But then it's interesting because there's a, there are many, you know, healthcare companies, uh, you know, in- individual companies and things throughout the United States. There are individual um insurance plans within states that people can uh, appeal to or rally against and things like that. But so much of even when you think about organizing at the local level, uh, at the local level within, you know, uh, let's say a a county or something, really in terms of being able to fund things like more, uh, more equitably distributing um, healthcare or making healthcare, you know, let's say free at the point of service to everyone in a community. Automatically at the local level, you kind of have to appeal to the state, and then the state is in a bind where they can't deficit spend in the first place. There, are, for instance, a common thing you hear among single payer advocates is, you know, maybe we'll try it in California or New York first, and that could work, right, with progressive taxation. But at the end of the day, this leaves out. You know, it's like I feel it strikes me as another way to segment things, essentially. Right. Yeah. Because it's yeah, yeah, it's like each of these little tiny uh, 
I don't know, like steps in in health, right, is a different separate extractive process. And you have all these sort of like little tiny factions. And then it becomes this question of like, well, do we support the survival of human beings or do we support the survival of these extractive institutions, which we have like codified into being because we've made a law that says that the PBM the, is required to transport the specialty drugs because they're dangerous. So like we can't get rid of the PBM because the law exists and, and it creates a sort of like endless cycle of... Um, reasons why not, right? Which actually mm-hmm. don't necessarily, uh, the reason why not is not that it'll uh, harm people, but that, uh, well, we have the system in place. So right, it's already there. The I think that that's we why we, we have to do the, the local, the local organizing is essential because the local is where people first get engaged and where if any pressure is going to be built, it's going to come from the many, many, many locals. But I, I've seen this, like there's, there's cities that have consent decrees. Their police are under consent decrees because they were found to be doing horrible things to people and they went through a whole process of Department of Justice or a court and now they're under a consent decree or under some kind of receivership and the and those receivers or whoever's in charge of them now says you can't reduce your staff at all <laughs> to the cops. <laughs> like, that is happening in some jurisdictions where people have organized to reduce the number of cops and to put a hiring freeze or whatever. So like we see these things, I can think of so many examples, but where we like, we find then we're doing this local organizing around a local thing, but then we hit a federal block. But I think the only way we're going to get through that federal block ever is if we have had so much powerful local organizing. And so I think it's this like, I mean, organizing is just, is just, you know, on some level, it's 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 a local job, even though we do it across regions and we do it networked and my group is connected to your group in another state or, you know, it's still like, that's where people often have um, a critical mass and like re- consistent relationships and are taking care of each other in various ways and people are in it for the long haul together because that's also the person who babysits your kids or brings you soup or whatever. And so I think that that it's, um, and I think in the US, our politics is very pointed at the federal. Like people think that's where politics is, it's in the presidency and Congress, and they don't know anything about their, like, you know, city council or county council members or even their state legislators. And that whole process is totally opaque to them. And that's where they could have more influence and occasionally would hit these federal, you know, roadblocks, especially with programs like Medicaid or different, you know, other programs that are funded through federal block grants. But I think it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to like, get people to look towards the local and then have a strategy that still includes like connecting the locals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it definitely doesn't help that for decades now we've like sucked the funding out of every municipality and out of every community in order to sort of consolidate it at this like larger level, because there is this perception of like, well, why even go and try on a t- impact the local government because it's just like too small like what change are you actually going to do and that that in and of itself is like not only austerity brain but it's uh literally a persuasive argument to convince you did not to organize yeah i mean the one thing that was useful about the trump administration was that people like people were like i have to go to the state and local level because federal is a non non-go right. and i think that actually was was good for a strategy maybe as a final topic for this uh i quoted you recently in an essay i wrote about a fashion designer named pierre Cardin. um <laughs> <laughs> and i was wondering if you could explain just for the listeners why you like to use the word subjection instead of oppression when you talk about yeah. relations of power yeah 
Um, that, you know, one of my aims in life is to be, is to say things in ways that are understandable to as many people as I can. And, and that can be challenging. Obviously it's nobody can, nobody can make a universally accessible language of any kind or ideas, of course, but I try to say things clearly. And when I, when I wrote my book, Normal Life, I really struggled about whether to use the word oppression, even though I didn't feel like it was totally accurate or to use subjection and ask people to go with me on it. Um, and I ended up using subjection and that's because the word oppression implies that like a real, like power over and like top down. And I, and, and I think that power is more complicated than that. I think that like the mm. way we arrive on the game board, we arrive on and, and how we play it is, is more complicated than that. And when people think of power as only like, you know, um, the power, the power over, they tend, it's very disempowering and it makes it seem like the thing we should do is like look to the top and try to change the top. So a lot of like ideas are like, we should just change the laws or we should just change who's in the presidency or who's in Congress. Like it's that kind of like, if we just got the right people there and if we just got the right things said from the top. And actually I think most of life doesn't really happen. Like as we've talked about, laws aren't even enforced. Like, right. Like cops do things all the time. People that are illegal, like we just, you know, the people at the Medicaid office are denying you, even though they shouldn't. And that's part of their system, you know? So we know that, um, that resistance is everywhere and that, um, social norms determine so much of what we experience, whether or not the law says this or that. And so the word subjection helps me think more about like how I get called into being a subject in this system, what kinds of ways that experience of being a subject is like shaped, what ideas shape it, what material conditions shape it. Um, And it just suggests um, a more complex way of thinking about power to me. So that was like the main reason was just like, even though oppression is used way more by organizers and people in community, and there's nothing wrong with that. When I was like writing down my ideas, I was like, that's gonna, that, that, that's, that word kind of clashes with what I'm saying about how we can and should make change as, I, as I'm asking people to move their attention away from just changing laws and changing who's on top and instead see that politics is everywhere in our lives and that we can enact resistance everywhere. And that, um, the most, like the most powerful thing we can do is, is a real bottom up strategy, um, and a real, like, um, a strategy of like deep collaboration. And, and that is, is not the same as just being like, well, if we could just get our guy up top, you know? So mm-hmm. that I, that's, that's, I'd say my shorthand on subjection. Well, that, that's a very, that's a very useful thing to remember because it's, you know, it's, yeah, again, I, th- I think reforms have a way of telling stories about themselves, erasing things about the, the world in which they work. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's very obvious what happens when you don't have a mobilized uh, population or when you don't have uh, people actually out there willing to, to fight to make things, in fact, uh, work. The, that that's actually, it's it's easy to for that to just reside in the shadows, but it matters. Yeah, and I, I do feel like that that sort of like total understanding of where that pressure comes from is much more realistic to to people's experiences than the than the idea of like top down oppression, because that sort of top down oppression plays into this whole idea of like of celebrity and and monarchy and there being a silver bullet fix to every problem. And ultimately, at the end of the day, unfortunately, it's a little bit longer and a little bit harder and a little bit more complex than that. (laughs) Yeah, I think also there's this really intense thing where like, I I was thinking about this because this week I was teaching about maroon communities and slave resistance. And most of my students were like, wow, I never heard about any of this. I thought the Civil War was just, you know, Lincoln's amazing. He ended slavery. I never heard about slave resistance. I never heard about the ways that that the resistance of enslaved people and 
other black people is actually what made the civil war go the way it did. And, uh, and just, you know, or the way that we talk about FDR and the new deal, but we don't ever talk about like the relentless, intense labor organizing, you know, like just, we tell the story in the way that's just about the one charismatic figure who's on top. And that mm-hmm. is such a loss. And that is, that's to demobilize us. I mean, that really is yeah. to make us not, if you don't have an accurate history of why anything ever changed, then how can you do an assessment about like how you, how you want to seek change? And it's right now, it's just like, hope for Biden to do this or give money <sighs> to the ACLU and they'll sue about this. And it's like, that is, that's not going to work. Well, and it carries over exactly to what we were uh, talking about much earlier, like very, very early on in the conversation of just, um, you know, people, people look at it and they're like, okay, we're, you know, we're going to, we're, we're, we'll work for a little bit. We'll, <laughs> Uh, not, not, not everyone, obviously, but you know, uh, uh, there is, there is, you know, a, a sentiment among, you know, some people where they're like, well, we're, we'll, we'll work on this. We'll get maybe a, you know, a modest incremental gain and then we'll go home. Cause yep. you know, but also today, like we're going to come back and, and get the people we left off, which has never, ever happens. It's if you yep. can't yeah. get the stigmatized people the first time or the, the thing everybody doesn't want to cover, you're definitely not going to get it when it's a standalone bill to fix the bill, you know, like, and so that feels so frustrating. Like that idea, like, Oh, we can't, we can't include undocumented people this time, or we can't include people in prison this time, but we'll, well, maybe we'll come back in a future. It's like, that is you've actually just made them so much more stigmatized that, you know. No, exactly. And I think all these programs at the end of the day, like when they're caught up and, and when we, when we give these like stigmatized positions to like to welfare recipients, to disabled people. And when we set up this sort of continuum of health where like the, we make an example of the people who are at the bottom of this continuum, all it does at the end of the day is serve to continue this this constant process of certifying the body for work, making sure that capitalism can continue. And that comes at the expense of the survival of our communities, of individuals. And it doesn't have to happen that way. And I think right now is a good time, especially as we were talking about considering COVID, to really trying to to work all angles at once. Medicare for all is the spear and it is part of the fight for housing justice. It is part of the fight for uh, for economic justice, for environmental justice, for racial justice. This is a tool. It's not a goal in and of itself. It's not uh, Medicare for all is not the um, is not the actual end point. We need to be looking bigger and past it more forward looking. Yeah. And we'd be so much better off in all the fights if we had it. Exactly. And I think, you know, this is probably a good place to leave it for today. Dean, where can people find you or find your work? Yeah. I have a lot of my work is on deanspade.net. I don't know why I chose .net, but I did. Um, <laughs> I like it. And cool. I also, I just started having an Instagram account. Spade oh my God. Dean. I know it was, I'm, I have mixed feelings. Um, and I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we really great. appreciate you taking the time. It's always a pleasure Thanks to talk to you. Thanks for making this great podcast. I love it. Oh, thank we appreciate you. that. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Dean. And um, thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week. As always, Medicare for All now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. This has been Medicare for All Week from the Death Panel. Medicare for All Week is an annual series presenting brand new interviews with activists, researchers, and others on building power toward Medicare for All, why we need it, and how to win it. 
Up next, in tomorrow's interview we speak with Nathan Tankus and Marshall Steenbaum about the biggest red herring in the discourse around single payer, how do we pay for it, and why this question is completely beside the point. To support our show and make event series like Medicare for All Week possible, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.